0: And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, slave is not greater than his master. Neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that... When it does occur, you may believe that I'm he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me.
1: Nobody in the history of the world, nowhere in the world, before or after, has ever foreknown and foretold Their death and their life and their resurrection the way Jesus did. It's an amazing thing. It's an astonishing thing when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, as I hope you will, at least in part this week. It is an astonishing thing what you find there in how he describes what is coming, knows what is coming, performs what is coming in accordance with the purpose of God so that not one promise of His Father in the Old Testament falls to the ground. He sets His face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And He doesn't turn to the right or to the left, but moves on a straight line toward obedience and toward the cross, knowing exactly what's coming, embracing it for our sake, performing it with infallible obedience in order that we might live. This is this amazing thing. To read the fabric of the Gospels, foreknown and foretold for your faith. Do you remember in the garden, um, Peter whacked off Malchus' ear what Jesus said right at that point? He said, no, put your sword away. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father... And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. And then he adds, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Jesus is choosing not to do certain things and he's choosing to do certain things so that infallibly the word of Scripture will happen the way God has designed this week to happen. Or do you remember earlier in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, thinking about his own death coming, Jesus said, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. Takes your breath away. Nobody can talk like that. Except one. It may look to bystanders or to people today who just kind of breeze over the Gospels. It may look... Here's a man who is the victim of mob violence, trumped-up charges, illegal court procedures, crowds crying crucify him, fickle governors. It may look like he's just being carried along by horrid, accidental circumstances. And he says, look again. Nobody takes my life from me. Nobody. I meet nothing by surprise in my last week. Nothing by accident comes my way in this week of my life. I lay my life down and I have power in death to take it again. That's who we're talking about here. Jesus Christ. I call it, you see it in the title there, a sovereign sacrifice And there are two ways I want you to feel the impact of it this morning. The first way is short. second way is longer. Let me tell you what they are. I want you to feel the impact of this because the sovereign sacrifice is a sacrifice for sins. And secondly, I want you to feel the impact because the benefit to you of the sovereign sacrifice for sins is only through faith. Those are the two points. It's a sacrifice for sins. Please, whatever tradition you have grown up in, or whatever teachings you have come under, don't limit the death of Jesus to being a model of how to finish a life well in obedience to God. That's not the main point of the life of Jesus or the death of Jesus. The main point of the death of Jesus is that it is a substitutionary sacrifice for sins that nobody can copy. It is absolutely unique in the history of the world. When the Son of God who never committed a sin offers himself up freely for sinners, a transaction is happening there that is absolutely spectacular for us sinners. It's called gospel. Paul put the gospel in a sentence in 1 Corinthians 15 like this. I make known to you the gospel that Christ died For our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day. That's the gospel. And it's the little phrase, for our sins, that makes it absolutely glorious for us. And utterly unique on the face of the earth. Never has there been, never will there ever be again. Anybody of the dignity of Jesus who can lay a spotless life down freely to substitute himself for sinners. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. So when I speak this morning of a sovereign sacrifice, please know I am not thinking of an ordinary man's ordinary death, no matter how obedient and resolute he was. That's not the point of his death. The point of his death was, it was substitutionary to cover sins for sinners. Now, the second thing is, to become a beneficiary of that sacrifice, you must believe him. You must trust him. He doesn't save everybody by his death. For God so loved the world. Why don't you just say this with me? This is John 3.16. We'll do the old King James way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For whosoever, what? Say it. Believeth in him. Now, if you read to the end of the chapter, you come upon... A verse that says, if you believe you have eternal life, but if you do not obey the Son, the wrath of God rests upon you. This is not romantic universalism here in John 3. This is a radical razor's edge dividing line in humanity. If you will believe in Jesus this morning, His sovereign sacrifice covers all your sins. And that's the gospel. And you can't work for it. You can't trade for it, negotiate for it, earn it, barter for it. So some of you may have walked in here. Maybe you've grown up in a church where you didn't hear this clear message that salvation is free, it's a gift, it was bought by another, you can't work for it yourself. There's a there is a universal, infinite difference between salvation purchased by another, received by faith, and salvation that you try to work yourself into so that you can somehow balance in the scales with your work someday. There's an infinite difference between those two Gospels, and this is no Gospel. And it is not biblical. And I beckon you to let the sovereign sacrifice this morning hit you in these two ways. Know that it is a sacrifice for sins and a substitute for sinners. And know that the way you benefit from it is not by works, but by trusting Jesus By seeing the glory in it, the truth of it, and by reaching the arms of your heart. It don't even have to be physical arms. You can be totally paralyzed. There is nothing you have to move in order to have this. Anywhere in the church building or outside of the church building. The arms of your faith go out and embrace this Savior and say, that's what I've been looking for all my life. I receive it. I rest in it. You are my all in all, this is the end of my quest. Now, what's that got to do with this morning's text? That's the introduction. What's that got to do with these verses? As I thought about preaching to you this morning, reading through this passage, which I just happened to be doing in planet, my heart was... Asking the Lord, God, I want to help bring about this second thing called faith. Because if I can't be used of you this morning to awaken faith in unbelievers and strengthen the faith of believers, I may as well not get in this thing. And then I read verse 19. I want you to read it with me and see the massive and glorious principle here. He has just predicted the betrayal of himself by Judas. And he says, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Most of the translations have to put he there because it would seem to dangle. But if you leave it hanging in the original, that you may believe that I am. Then you hear the echo of Exodus 3. I am who I am has sent you. Tell them I am has sent you. What would the son of I am be called? But I am. So, verse 19 is designed to describe a way that faith comes into being and is strengthened. And so when I read it, I said, let me do this. I will try to take verse 19 and work it for all I'm worth this morning. I want to do this thing now. I want to do verse 19. Because, do you see the logic of verse 19? I want to make sure you get this so you know where I'm going and why I'm doing it the way I'm doing it. It says, I tell you things that are about to happen in my life, things that are going to happen to me, like my betrayal. I tell you them now, before they happen, so that when they happen, faith will happen. That's what I want to happen this morning. I want faith to happen. I want unbelievers in this room for whom religious stuff has just been marginal to become powerfully central. we got people in this room who don't believe in Jesus. We've got people in this room whose faith in Jesus is there and it is weak and wavering and you wonder if you can persevere in it another week because of what you're going through. And then we've got some who are strong. And they just want to be stronger. And they're happy to be spoken to about how to beget and strengthen faith. we got them all over the map in this room, right? Now, if I understand this verse, it's designed for everybody. It says... Here's the principle, I just kind of broadened it out. For knowing things that are going to happen to Jesus, and foretelling things that are going to happen to Jesus is for the purpose of awakening faith. Do you see that? That's not hard to see. This is an easy verse. For the purpose of awakening faith in the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. Who can forgive you and care for you forever and lead you to heaven if you'll trust him. That is, if you'll have the faith this verse is trying to give you. Well then, what should I do with this verse? What would you do now? If you had another 15 minutes or so, what would you do with it? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise an objection first and then I'm gonna Spend the rest of my time answering the objection. The objection would go like this. Why would Jesus' ability to foretell what's coming in his life prove or warrant faith in his divine sonship? Why wouldn't it just prove that he is a prophet? Like Isaiah also toward the future. It's very clear that John does not believe Jesus is a mere prophet. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. When he says that you may believe that I am, he means more than just another prophet, just another John the Baptist. It's very clear. So we have to ask, hmm, so whether I get it or not, Jesus meant that being able to predict the future the way he does it warrants faith in him as the son of God. Why? Five reasons. Now, what I want to do in these five reasons is take the principle of verse 19 in chapter 13 of John and apply it in five different ways. There's a principle here. And if we apply it in the right biblical ways, I hope what will happen is that right now, in the next 10 or 15 minutes, the Holy Spirit will come into this room and do verse 19 in your life. Why don't we just stop and ask him to do that? Let's pray. Father, I know that mere words cannot awaken faith, though you do ordain that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We believe that we're looking at the word of God in John 13:19. And now Lord, if you would come and by your holy spirit quicken my words, anoint them, empower them and stir in the hearts of these people. There wouldn't be just a information sharing going on here, but a divine supernatural transaction. And I ask that it would be the awakening of saving faith and the strengthening of saving faith. In Jesus' mighty name I ask it. Amen. Okay. Reason number one, why I believe that this principle applied to Jesus proves that he is more than another prophet. The first reason is that his knowledge of what was coming is complete and not partial like a prophet. Isaiah, sure. John the Baptist, yes. They told the future. But they told it a little here, a little there, as God, who knows it, gave it to them. Not so with Jesus. I refer you to John 18.4. And there are about three other places we could look, or two others at least, that I know of. But we'll just look at one. John 18.4. In the garden, the mob is gathering. Will Jesus... Muster courage and faith and face them. Here's what John says in verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Knowing all things that were coming upon him. Not just one here and one there, as God might be pleased to give to a prophet. But knowing all things, Jesus was surprised by nothing in his life. This is not the description of any ordinary prophet. John's testimony to this Jesus, the Jesus that he knew, is a testimony to a man who, as it says in Matthew 1241, something greater than Jonah is here. Remember that great line? You may think he's just another prophet, another Jeremiah, another John the Baptist. But those who have eyes to see are recognizing a flavor of authority, a dimension of knowledge, a claim for himself and an act of power that is incomparable in the world here. John said elsewhere, all things that the Father has are mine. That is, Jesus said it through John, all things that the Father has are mine because I and the Father are one. That means the knowledge of the Father is mine. That's reason number one. Number two, when you apply the principle of John 13, 19 to the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah, lived out and worked out in the life of Jesus, It is a stunning way to read the Gospels. And they are not simply predictions of a prophet. As they come true in the life of Jesus, you realize he's not a predicted prophet. He is a fulfillment of predictions and prophecies. So let's look at them here. If we had time, we'd spend an hour on this, just dwelling over them. There are dozens of them. I'll just give you a... A smattering, and what I want you to see is that detail after detail after detail of both what Jesus did and what was done to Jesus was predicted in the Old Testament by the Father who knew what was coming, and it means therefore that we should believe in him. the birth of jesus matthew one hundred and twenty one she will bear a son. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive. Jesus stay in Egypt for that short while as the boy, Matthew 2.15, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt have I called my son. Jesus living in the city of Nazareth, Matthew 2.23, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Jesus settling not in Nazareth, but later in Capernaum, Matthew 4, 13 to 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who are sitting in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus, many healings, Matthew 8, 16 to 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah. He himself took our infirmities and carried our diseases. Jesus speaking in parables. Matthew 13, 34, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and utter things hidden. The unbelief of the people as they listened to him and resisted him was a fulfillment of the prophecies in Isaiah 53, 1. This people who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, John 12, 37. The hatred of Jesus by his enemies John fifteen twenty four. if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have both seen me and hated me. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written, they hated me without a cause. Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, Matthew 21, 2 fulfillment of, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey. The circumstances surrounding the arrest in Matthew 26:55. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Judas' betrayal of Jesus, John 13, 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then Judas money, when he threw it back into the temple, the 30 pieces of silver, what did they do with it It was prophesied. Jeremiah, Zechariah, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of one whose price has been set and gave it. To them for a potter's field. Jeremiah 18, Zechariah 11. The casting of lots. Picture this little incidental thing now. Soldiers sitting at the feet of the dying Son of God. And they're ready to strip it into cloth and go home and make something out of it. And they say, and why do they say this? Why? Why do they use their wills this way? Let's not tear it. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Psalm 22:18. 18. The piercing of Jesus side so that no bone would be broken. No broken legs here. Why? Not a bone of him shall be broken and we could go on and on the second application of the principle of John 13:19 is that god did it too jesus didn't only tell the future god told the future in the old testament why so that when it came true you might believe third Jesus himself taught that all the prophecies about himself would be fulfilled. This is just a little different than the second one. In the second one, the evangelists, the gospel writers, are gathering all these texts and seeing how they came true in the life of Jesus. In this one, Jesus himself steps back, looks at his life, and announces, I am the fulfillment. All these things are coming my way, and I endorse them as coming true in my life. Listen to the way he puts it in. Luke twenty two thirty-seven. I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes, he was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12. And then he says, For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Jesus, get this now. The mind of Jesus is not the mind of an ordinary man. It's not the mind of an ordinary prophet. This is a man who, as he looks at the Old Testament unfolding before him, he says, these things refer to me. I am the climax and the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. They have their yes in me. It is a tragedy. I will mention this as a parenthesis. It is a tragedy this week for me to read again in a magazine of a public television program in Britain put on by scholars who are finding a non-supernatural Jesus behind the Jesus of the Gospels and portraying him with much scholarly fanfare as the Jesus of history. You just... If you know, if you know the history of scholarship, especially since the Enlightenment, you just kinda, again, have we seen enough of these creations of every generation? A 60s Jesus, a 70s Jesus, an 80s Jesus, a 90s Jesus, an atheistic Jesus, a Jewish Jesus, a Muslim Jesus. You can create anything you want. If you play scholarly games behind the sources, which is all they can do. It's a mind game. I played it for years in Germany and watched the other players. It's a tragedy. I had a teacher one time who said that it was a wise word back in 1968, old Everett Harrison, in a course on Pauline theology. He said, you know, evangelicals don't need to get too nervous about the reconstructions of Paul and of Jesus as the supposed historical Paul and the historical Jesus behind the Jesus of the Bible and behind the Paul of the Bible because secular scholars in universities themselves do the correcting eventually. And he was 83 years old or so at the time. And he just with great serenity said, I have seen in my lifetime without any evangelical effort to overthrow the reconstructions of secular historians. They get overthrown by themselves because they so distort and manipulate and guess. There's all this guesswork behind the sources Maybe there was a layer here and a layer there. Maybe there was a saying here and a the saying there. Maybe that wasn't. It's all guesswork. And, and you read the, 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 the manuscripts. It's probably this and perhaps this and probably this and perhaps that. And you get to the end of it and says, this, this, really, this really is what protected me in Germany for three years. When you count up the perhapses and the probablys in most German doctoral dissertations, you feel like, that's not livable. I can't die for that. That is not livable. You can play that game and you can make a big living in universities. You can't live that. And if you can't live a philosophy, it isn't worth talking about. You can't live a string of perhapses because of imaginary sources behind sources behind sources. And therefore, let us not worry too much, but let us weep and pray that God would not destroy too many people by the Jesus Seminar, and by these reconstructions that are put forth as scholarly on public television in Britain these weeks. All of that was, uh, that parenthesis there, was inspired by Jesus' amazing self-consciousness as you read the Gospels. Here is a man who knew he was more than a prophet. Now, fourth observation. Not only did God in the Old Testament prophesy what would come in Jesus' life in great detail and what would happen to him in great detail so that when it happened, we would believe. Jesus, learning that from his Father, began to do it himself midway into his... Well, actually, it started at the beginning, John 2, but he began really to do it in Mark 8. And let me just give you a few examples. Mark 8, 31, the Son of Man... This was his favorite self-designation. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. And the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and rise again. So he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must be killed, he will rise again. There he is, a sovereign sacrifice being outlined before it happens. Here are a few more. He knew and he prophesied that he would die by crucifixion. John 3.14 As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And thus he spoke, telling what death he would die by in John 12 as well. The disciples would find an unridden colt just happened to be tied there when they entered Jerusalem. Luke 19.30 When they go into the city to find a place to do the Lord's Supper. He predicted, you will find a man carrying a pitcher. Follow him into his house and he'll have a room for us. He knew the exact hour of his departure out of the world. John thirteen one, Knowing that the hour had come. He knew that he would be betray who would betray him and when he would be betrayed. Exactly. John six forty four, Matthew 26, 2. He knew the fact and the time of Peter's Denial. Picture this. Peter. Matthew 26, 34. Truly. He puts that at the front of sentences that are very authoritative. Truly. I say to you. This very night. Before the cock crows. Three times. You will deny me. I have spoken. And just to put. Authority on it, in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, he says, probably with a tearful smile on his face, and when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Is that awesome? (laughs) You're going down, and you're coming up, and I know it, and I'm telling you. And to be sure of it, I am praying, And I've asked the Father, do it, and you will be a rock, and I'll build my church. He said, Matthew 26, 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. So my fourth point is that Jesus said these kinds of things so that when they happened, you this morning might believe. Do you believe? There's one more. And it's this. The gospel writers treat the prophecies of Jesus about what he said will happen to him as fulfilled with the same language that they treat the Old Testament, thus endowing Jesus with the same divine authority that they endow the Bible with. The Old Testament. Let me give you an example. There's about two or three of these, but here's one. John 18, 31. Pilate says to the Jews, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. Ooh, he wanted to be free of this man. ooh, ooh he wanted to be free... And the Jews said to him we are not permitted to put anyone to death Where did that come from It came this way here's the next sentence This this negotiation between Pilate and the Jews this falling out of their decisions about how he shall die, this was to fulfill the words of Jesus. Not the Old Testament. Jesus, which he spoke signifying by what kind of death he would die. Namely, not stoning Now, you got to get what's happening here. you got to get the authority, the power, the sovereignty of a moment like this. Here's Pilate saying, you take him, you can have him. You've asked for him, you want him dead. I'm the authority in this province. Kill him. And at that moment, the authority of Jesus is at stake. The authority of the word of the Son of God is at stake. And therefore... To fulfill scriptures, almighty God ordains that they will not do it. And Pilate has to do it. And he is crucified. As he said he would be. Well, that's it. That's it. I tell you these things before they happen. So that when they happen, you might believe. So I just close with a plea and a prayer. Will you this morning, wherever you've come from and wherever you are on the continuum of unbelief to strong belief, would you look at the sovereign sacrifice, the substitution for sins? And then would you let the warrant the justification, the evidence that Jesus himself said was meant to produce faith, would you let it have sway in your life this morning? Let's pray. Oh God, hundreds of us who believe right now, engage in prayer for any who are struggling. And if you're saying right now, I don't know, I just don't know. dealt with a woman a few weeks ago who came up after the service and, and she said, I, I want to be a Christian. And I said, what's stopping you? And she said, I don't think I can do it. And I said, well, that's easy. You don't do it. You don't have to do it. Lay down that self-reliance. Lay it down and cast yourself on a Christ like this one. Trust him. He'll forgive you and he'll give you his Holy Spirit and he'll help you do whatever needs to be done. And the doing is not what saves you. The trusting saves you. So I plead with you, trust him. Consider the evidence that he has given us and let it move you. And believe. I'll be here at the front to pray with anybody. If you're praying something like, I, I, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to believe, help my unbelief. That's a great prayer. It's a biblical prayer, and we can pray it with you. Others, elders will stand here, and prayer team members, let's stand for closing benediction. The Lord bless you, keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you faith. Maybe for the first time, maybe strengthened, maybe doubly strong because of his word this morning. And all the people said, Amen.